Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to performance gymnastics coaching consultant, Nick Ruddock. Thanks for tuning in to episode 160 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have performance gymnastics coach and consultant Nick Ruddock on the line. So after quite a few episodes over, I suppose, the last couple of years that have delved into gymnastics in team sports and especially in youth development, I thought it was good. it would be good to get on someone who actually works in gymnastics full-time and how the skills are developed by gymnasts can be replicated in a more uh, a traditional uh, sport, more team sport environment. So it was great to get Nick on, who has actually had quite a lot of experience um, delivering to uh, football academies, to soccer academies. So it was great to get him on to discuss that transfer, and but also more importantly, what gymnastics is like as a, as a sport um, and maybe what other sports can learn um, from gymnastics. So in this episode with Nick, he discusses a lot about his skill acquisition model and physical preparation model. And there's also a nice little free resource that Nick talks about um, that you can get on his website, nickruddock.com. So another bit that forms a large part of the podcast is what gymnastics is like as a sport and kind of where it is in terms of its physical preparation uh, ethos, but also how that can be transferred to a more traditional kind of team sport environment, uh, which is really, really interesting. And if you are implementing any sort of gymnastics within your youth development sessions or just development sessions with uh, adult athletes, I'm sure you'll get tons out of this podcast with Nick. If it was, let's say, a Bulgarian single leg dip, then we would make sure our athletes are doing it exceptionally well. The same with an RDL. The same with uh, doing 10 chin-ups. You know, it's not uncommon for an eight-year-old girl to be able to do 15 chin-ups. So it's like, you know, it's it's having those high standards. And, and that's kind of what I'm bringing into the football academies is, is actually presenting an opportunity. But just before we do go on to the podcast with Nick, just want to say a big thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and All New Human Track and Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. So if you want to learn more about any of the three products that Val Performance offer, you can head over to valperformance.com. And if you are interested in a Force Plate uh, hardware and software solution, uh, you can head over to forcedex.com. Also, if you are interested in anything to do with jump monitoring, I would encourage you to check out episode 139 of the podcast, where Dr. Daniel Cohen talks about everything uh, to do with uh, to do with jump monitoring, uh, including his work with Force Decks. So over to the podcast with Nick. Uh, hope you enjoy and love your feedback. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Nick Ruddock, who is a performance gymnastics coaching consultant. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much, Rob. No, it's great to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of info on your background uh, and maybe take us on a little bit of a journey to, uh, to where you got to today? Yeah, so uh, essentially, I'm a gymnastics coach. Um, I coach women's artistic gymnastics, which is your 
typical Olympic four, four apparatus, vault bars, beam and floor. And um, my background, of course, was gymnastics as well. So I came from a just a recreational background as an athlete. I did two hours a week and that was it. So it's pretty non, non-conventional sort of uh, background, if you like, for most people within sport. But uh, it was enough to keep me in the sport and, and keep that passion for gymnastics. It was my favorite two hours of the week was going to my gymnastics class. And from there, I, I guess organically got into coaching at a recreational level as well. When I was about uh, 15, 16 years old, you know, just helping out as an assistant coach within my club in, in Woking. And um, bit the bug of, of coaching. I, you know, I was at college, but juggled about a 20-hour week of recreational coaching as well. And I think, you know, that for me was really important to learn the coaching craft and how to manage a less disciplined group of athletes, perhaps, or gymnasts, if you like, and, and uh, learn about class control and, and all those different types of things that we tend to miss if we go straight into performance sport often. But uh, that's where I bit the bug, and, and I was really lucky to find some great mentors within the club. And that is where I dip my toe into more of a high performance path, really. And, you know, that just sort of whet my appetite for it. And I always wanted to do more. So I was inspired by the USA team, actually, in, in Athens in 2004. And I really felt that with the USA being the, the world leaders, it was the best place for me to go and learn. So when I was 18, I took out a pretty hefty loan and traveled to the States to be mentored by... Um, two actually, or two or three of the, the world's leading coaches. And of course, that really fast-tracked me to you know, to be, um, fast-tracked me within the performance sport world and, and certainly my technical knowledge, perhaps not my coaching understanding, because I think you can't really skip that and experience and exposure are, are certainly two different things. But in terms of my technical knowledge, that really, really helped. And um, and that's where I really fell in love with, with artistic gymnastics and got excited about, you know, a, a crazy level of difficulty in the States and, and what they were doing. So, um, you know, that really helped fast track my, my development. And, and when I came back to the UK, uh, I had a few different roles over the sort of three, four year period in different high performance centers around the country, one in Nottingham, one in Manchester. And uh, I then ended up in 2010 being employed by the national governing body, of course, British Gymnastics as the national coach for juniors and that was a four-year role or a role that I took on for four years which was an absolutely fantastic part of my uh, my career my background um, essentially my role there was to look after any athlete within the high performance program that was under the age of 16 so anyone of 15 years and, and below and the I guess the main objective there was to transition or to, to make sure as many of those athletes transition from being a junior athlete into a senior athlete to win medals on the world stage. And, uh, you know, we had a really good run through, some some great results for our junior program, the best results that we, we had, um, you know, for a number of factors. We had a great group of athletes as well, many of which are still competing and winning medals for GB. And uh, in particular, I worked closely with Amy Tinkler and as uh, her national coach for four years and also her, her personal coach, leading up um, just towards Rio as well. And she was uh, did great performance and, and, and medaled on floor in Rio uh, with a bronze medal. So that was all, all fantastic. And, uh, you know, since the back end of 2015, I've actually been consulting now. So my, my day-to-day life is is mostly spent abroad. I've, I've worked with sort of 13, 14 federations now, uh, international gymnastics federations. Um, various things, you know, it could be education. A lot of it is, is hands-on 
coaching time with the athletes themselves. And that's taken me, you know, all over from Japan, Australia, Italy, Germany, for example. So it's, uh, I'm in a really fortunate position to, to help other people with education, but also, of course, me being thrown into so many different high performance environments means that I'm learning an awful lot as well. And, um, that's led to a number of other opportunities, including some sort of work consulting for professional sports teams and Premier League stuff within, within the football world. So, yeah, it's quite diverse at the minute. I'm running events. I've got some digital content, you know, I do a little bit of blogging and things like that. So it's a, it's a nice, diverse life. Every week, I'm typically in another country, maybe even two countries. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a bit about me. So one thing I'm interested in, when you went to the States early on in your career, what did you see over there that they were doing different to what we were doing over here? Why were they so incredibly successful? Oh, God, it was <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, it was, there was, there's the obvious things. The obvious things is the, the number of athletes they've got. The facilities, I think, are certainly a contributing factor. There's always this question mark about how motivated those athletes are compared to ours because of whether it's collegiate systems or um, just just the media and the way that the media is certainly back then was certainly promoting gymnastics and and these athletes far more than what we were doing in GB although that that has changed now that needles moved it a bit on that I think the intensity was a lot greater and to be honest the, the coaching the standard of coaching was and and still is higher. And, um, you know, a lot of people always ask me, oh, you know, why are the U.S. so much better? There's, there's so many different things contributing to that. They've got some marginal gains, but I think they've got some significant gains as well. They've, they've just got an awful lot of expertise with coaches that have been there, done it, and, and you know, been on that journey over and over again. And, of course, within the ecosystem, it's, it's now self-fulfilling. They've got the financial resources. They've got the coaching expertise. They've got the talent pool. And uh, whilst there's always areas that every federation can be better, they're doing a lot of things right as well. But for me, it was just inspiring. I'd, I'd never even seen that that level of performance like live. I'd seen it on, te- and on TV, you know, watching the Olympics and things, but actually standing in that environment and listening to the coaches, that was the first time I'd done it. And uh, for me, it was incredibly inspirational. And it's the one thing that I encourage as many coaches of any age to do. You know, if you can get out to the highest performing environment possible, then, then do so because it's the single, the single thing I believe that can really transform a, a coach's career. And um, you know, for me, I was in a national coaching position at sort of twenty three years old, I think, which I believe is you know it's quite young to be in that kind of position. And um, and being in that role, I was really fortunate to get a lot of support from UK Sport and be on the ECAP program and things like that. And I just don't think I would have had those opportunities so early if I hadn't been exposed to those environments. Now. That's not to say that I can um, I can compare to a lot of coaches that have got 20 years of extra experience to me, but of course, I don't think anyone can turn down exposure to those environments. It's certainly going to help. So from someone who has been in gymnastics a long time, uh, and obviously still working in gymnastics and still heavily involved in a in consultancy basis, but also someone that has been exposed to multiple sports along the way, what's dif- what makes gymnastics different to all of the sports? I think there's quite a lot of uh, differences, really. I mean, I'm probably a bit biased on this, but I think the first the first thing that comes up, which is controversial, I know, is we're an early specialisation sport. You know, I just believe that that is the reality, and it's not through choice, uh, necessarily. It's not that we want to be uh, having sort of, you know, five, six, seven-year-old 
uh, girls or boys, you know, only investing their time in, into gymnastics. But the nature of the sport and the demands of the sport kind of dictate that that is what we need to do. And uh, I know there's not many sports, probably perhaps figure skating, maybe maybe swinging, swimming that would be in that kind of uh, category as well. But I believe that is that is the reality of, of what we do. Um, you know, we've got kids walking through the door at five years old. And we do our best to try and talent ID, you know, gymnasts when they're sort of six, seven, eight years old, which obviously presents its own challenges because it's so, it's so difficult to identify, you know, the performance potential of an athlete, as we all know, that young. But we look at as many indicators as possible. You know, how many indicators do we think that are contributing to us, you know, making a decision as to whether this athlete could or this child could potentially move forwards in the sport. So although that's got its problems, it's it's got its benefits as well. You know, we've got the opportunity to really mould these kids at a very young age, you know, positively mould them in the right direction for the sport. And um, perhaps just to give a little bit of context to the audience, it's not uncommon, in fact, it's very common, that we would have a 10-year-old athlete training about 20 hours a week, maybe across five or, or even, well, typically five days a week for, for 20 hours. Uh, by the time they're 10 years old, now that seems like an awful lot for most other sports, but within gymnastics, it's normal. It's it's always been that way, and I'm sure it will always continue to be that way. And uh, you know that might be the volume of training for a 10-year-old, but that's going to increase. Uh, you know, When I was working with Amy Tinkler, we were doing 30 and a half hours a week when she was 15, 16 years old, and that's, of course, juggling a, an education as well and, and, and school and and all those things. So it's kind of taken the whole concept of physical and mental robustness to a whole new level because, you know, our robustness for these young girls, let's say as an example, might be that we need that when they're 12 years old. You know, they're doing huge volumes of training. They're doing a lot of competition and they are maybe, you know, pre-pubescent. They're just, just about to go through puberty or maybe they've even started it. But I think for us to have that robustness that early is does present a challenge, but also um, is justification of why we do need the volume to, you know, to prepare them for what's going to come. And, and again, just to provide some context, our, our female athletes can compete at Olympic Games at just 15 years old, and so they're they're typically the youngest athlete which would represent their, um, you know, the home home country, if you like. So with with Amy Tinkler, she was the youngest team member of the entire GB team in Rio at just 15 years old. So, and uh, I believe Rebecca Tunney was the same in London um, four, four years prior. So, so gymnasts tend to be the youngest there. And I think um, that's where a lot of our, our differences come from. But again, we can't ignore the fact that gymnastics is a judge sport. There's, there's, a, there's a set framework for how things need to look. And if it's not right, it's deducted. Um, there's pros and cons to that. I mean, the framework is great because it acts as a guideline for development almost an education system as to, you know, this is what we feel that they should be doing and this is how it needs to look. And that's, that's great for education, but um, has implications, of course, for the way that we need to coach as well. So for a 10-year-old doing 20 hours a week, what does that 20 hours look like in terms of how that's split up among, um, among disciplines? Yeah. Um, okay, so with regards to uh, discipline, what we, what we tend to do is... I'm going to give you a rough figure that I tend to encourage 25 to 33%. So a quarter to a third of that time should be spent on physical preparation. And that's, there's obviously a number of different facets of physical preparation, but that's going to take us from 
the various forms of flexibility, the general conditioning, um, strength training, prehab, maybe some rehab, you know, activation, you know, all the different facets we would assume, we would, you know, accumulate to come to about a quarter to a third of that, of that training time. So that's what, four to six hours. So, um, we've then got the rest, of course, the technical time. And typically we spend a lot of time on bars and beam, uh, floor and vault are both legs apparatus. So it's, it's pretty common for coaches to do a little bit less in terms of total volume because I don't want to overkill how much the athletes are doing in terms of, uh, you know, rebounding, jumping and landing in repetitions, because for sure that's going to take its toll. And, uh, that's where we tend to see things like, um, severs and osteous lattice kind of flare up in those early years as well. So we've just got to monitor how much in terms of load that they're doing. But it could be that they spend 45 minutes to an hour swinging on bars on each of those days. It could be the equivalent on beam and they might do sort of 30 minutes on floor, 30 minutes on vault. So, um, so typically we have a, uh, we do physical preparation to start with. We would then run through three to four apparatus and we finish off with a little bit of physical preparation at the end. And out of a four hour training session, you know, the gymnast, they wouldn't have a break. That, that's a continuous session. Even at eight, nine years old, if they're doing, you know, two, three or four hours. It's always continuous. We don't tend to have breaks halfway through because, uh, you know, they're not, they're not actually moving for four hours. You know, they've got standing around a little bit. They're chalking up. They're recovering and things. But, uh, again, that's the nature of the sport. That's why, you know, we've got a high intensity. They need that intensity. And that contributes to why we are quite well conditioned, really. And what age do these kids start traditional strength training? Well, this is quite an interesting topic actually at the minute because Gymnastics is changing a fair bit, I believe, at the minute. We've got a combination of things happening. We've got the rules changing because um, if we go back a few Olympic cycles, it used to be a, a fixed level of difficulty. You were scored out of 10 in terms of complexity. Now it's what we call an open-ended code, so that you can you can produce um, however you like, the, the, the highest difficulty you can get to. So essentially you can, you can reach a world record in terms of difficulty in bars, for example. So... Of course, what those rules are encouraging is, is athletes doing more complex elements as part of their routines. So we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing the technology and the, specifically the technology behind the equipment improving. And as a result of that, we've got now springier surfaces. Now that actually, in my opinion, is presenting uh, quite a big challenge across gymnastics because I don't really think that we're ready to be on even springier surfaces now traditional gymnastics preparation um has been going on for years and years and years in terms of the physical preparation and it should continue to do so because it's absolutely essential but i don't think it's adequate now without strength training to prepare athletes for the kind of forces that they're experiencing when they're when they're you know rebounding and jumping and landing on these new surfaces because they're just so elastic you know the floors are insanely bouncy so you've not only got to be able to produce that force which might be easier on a sprung surface as long as you're stiff, but uh, you've got to be able to absorb that force as well. So, so what we've got now is a combination of younger athletes competing higher level elements on surfaces which are kind of less forgiving, I guess. You know, they're, they're bouncing the kids all over the place, or, or some of the landing mats are rock solid when they're landing. So that's presenting quite a, a challenge, and. I think we need to be moving towards more of a hybrid approach now. And, you know, it's been happening. Don't get me wrong. Of course, we've got the EIS support. Uh, I'm a big fan of the EIS team and, and you know, Louise Forbes at the British Gymnastics and, and Rudy and the team there. Have, you know, I've learned an awful lot from them. You know, within the system, it's been going on for a while. But how much that information is able to filter out to, you know, the hundreds and thousands of clubs that are around the country 
that's kind of another story. And I think there's a big gap there, but also an opportunity for more strength training to take place to just further enhance the, you know, the robustness of our athletes. So I'm going to say at the minute, it's a relatively new still into the system of gymnastics, but, you know, people like, uh, like myself, you know, it's part of our bread and butter, of course, strength training would take up a, a, a major part of the, the program. It's, it's still only, in my opinion, got to fill in the gaps of what conventional gymnastics doesn't offer. Because I believe that our, our own preparation and the way that we operate does actually deal with a lot of this already. It's the, as I said before, we, you know, we can't really replicate the, the force production and reduction which is necessary landing a, let's say, a double twisting double back somersault on the floor without some form of external load. You know, the, the, the level of force on the body, and you know, I can't remember the exact times body weight that, that the body will be underneath or the force times body weight sorry or whether the body is experiencing when it's hitting the floor from those kind of rotational movements but it's huge and the only way to replicate that kind of force is, is going to be through strength training so i think you know it's going to play a, a more integral role moving forwards but it's by no means the um, the main form of our preparation so I know we chatted about this before, but are more local clubs, local gymnastics clubs or regional gymnastics clubs, are they ready to embrace strength training or is it something that's going to take a little bit of time due to maybe things like tradition? Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to take a little bit of time, to be honest. I think there's a, there's a little bit of um, self-admittance to say, you know what, let's hold our hands up. There's a lot more we can learn and let's embrace the expertise from the sports science world and strength and conditioning coaches, etc. I certainly think that, that there's an opportunity for that. There's, um, I believe, some internal organisation work that needs to be done as well. So it's not just having a strength and conditioning coach come in and, and contribute, but it's the way that we collaborate with those people. It's the way that we communicate. And I think equally, there's, there's not many, to my knowledge, and this isn't a criticism, there's not many strength and conditioning coaches that actually have much expertise within gymnastics either you know i've not come across many at all and uh you know i was fortunate enough to to uh, build a relationship up in uh, durham which is where i was training with amy tinkler with um with uh, well now a colleague of mine daniel lonsdale he's uh he was actually working with team durham rugby and now he's at sport 981 in nottingham but one of his roles through the durham institute of sport was to you know come into the gym every single week work alongside me and, and kind of what my needs were with the athletes and and that was a great mutual relationship because whilst I was learning a lot about strength and conditioning Dan was learning a lot about gymnastics and um you know we kind of opened up those those worlds to each other and that was you know integral support for me with Amy to build her robustness and her strength moving forwards um but I know that Dan got an awful lot out of it and he absolutely loved working with the gymnasts because he said you know they're phenomenally strong by the by the time they're 12, 13 years old, you know, they might have done seven years of physical preparation and there's not many sports that can say that. And so before they even pick up a weight, they've got a great base level of conditioning, a fantastic level of physical preparation, which is only going to underpin the work that they do if they're moving some sort of external load of resistance. So what does, as a coach in gymnastics, what does the skill acquisition model look like and how has that developed yeah. for you as a gymnastics coach over time? So again, I think we have to we have to look back to the nature of our sport being a judge sport. Um, interestingly, in gymnastics, there are literally thousands of different skills that that gymnast might need to perform in their career. 
So it's again, it's not like many other sports where you've got sort of um, just a, just a few movements that they might need to do in terms of a, a technical movement. We've got thousands, and it could be you know from from somersault type activities, twisting activities, you know, the various forms of acrobatic elements. There's literally hundreds just on bars alone. So you know we've got to take into consideration how do you teach that volume of skills because it's it can be overwhelming, but I guess similarly to to other sports, everything is actually starting from just a few core different elements. So for us, a handstand is a is a key position. It's a key shape that hundreds of skills will require. You know, we we always require an excellent handstand because it leads into so many others. Uh, let's say just even a backflip, for example, which obviously is flipping backwards to place the hands on the floor in a handstand position before placing the feet back down again. That would, that would just be one example of many. So when we compromise those basic fundamental skills, we're actually compromising all the other skills which are going to take off from there. So I guess one of my favorite quotes is that you know the winner is the chef who takes the same ingredients as everybody else but produces the best results. You know, and so what we're thinking about here is that you know we're all teaching a handstand, we're all teaching a backward somersault, we're all teaching a um, let's say a, you know what we call a backward giant, a swing around the bar, but it's you know, what is the quality of that movement? And if we compromise that quality at, at such a basic fundamental level, then it doesn't matter how much physical preparation you do afterwards, you know, you are just not going to develop into being a highly technical athlete. So because of all this information, we've got to really break down the skills into multiple layers to make sure that we are drip feeding the process of learning. And I think the trick, the, the art for me personally, or from what I've seen, is you've got to try and teach these skills without overly manufacturing the process and removing the natural flair for the performance. Because when you break a skill down into, let's say, let's say we break a, a backward somersault down into 20 different chunks, let's call them drills, 20 different drills, and we're looking for something extremely specific because there's a framework and the judges will deduct if it's not done correctly, we can actually start moving towards a robotic movement, and that's exactly what we don't want. You know, we don't want to manufacture the natural flair for performance away from the athlete. So, you know, what I believe we have to do is, is teach set parameters and principles in which athletes can, can use for different exercises. So, for example, it's a, a key principle for gymnasts to understand that rotation comes from the hips. If you're rotating forwards and you're rotating backwards, rotation comes from the hips. That will be a principle. In the same way, another principle would be that uh, the head position, or in terms of where the athlete should be looking, I believe the athlete should always be looking at the floor when they're doing multiple somersaults. They've got a point of reference to help with their coordination. So these are parameters, and I think as long as you tick the parameters and you tick the boxes, you're going to get a good end result, and you're going to do that hopefully without overly manufacturing the process. Um, it's a kind of balance between guided discovery and some really accurate methodology and technical work. So, you know, you've got high standards and you're raising your standards, but you're also letting the athlete, I guess, have a constraints approach, really. It's a, you know, letting the athlete play a little bit. You know, you set the boundaries. This is what I need you to do. These are the parameters of the movement. Right, now go go and try it. You know, throw it against the wall, see if it sticks, see if that movement works for the athlete, and if not, maybe adapt into another one. So, so we've got to make sure that we're, we're moving patiently and... Uh, we're making sure that all these fundamentals are, are really well taught. And I guess that's the that's the the art of coaching, but also that's the downside for where many, many coaches are uh, are falling short. They you know it's really 
it's quite complex. Uh, sorry, not complex. It's quite difficult to imagine that you might have this athlete with you for 20 years because, again, the sport's changed for that reason. You know, we're not just producing little girls anymore. We've got athletes in their mid-20s competing at the Olympic Games and, and they're meddling. So, you know, that's great for the sport and that means a longer journey. So we don't need to teach these elements within sort of three or four weeks. You know, let's draw out the process to make sure that we're drip feeding it and, you know, the re information's retained and those skills are going to last forever. So it's, you know, the, the longer we can take to teach them, um, I guess slow cooking brings out the best flavour, as I say. Okay, I'm just trying to marry up what you've just said with regards to the skill acquisition side of things, but also going back to the start of the conversation with the talent ID uh, side of things. So I'm just trying to marry up uh, what that looks like because gymnastics is a sport that is so technical. So if you could expand on that, that'd be, that'd be super. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, I think what we what we look for because it is it's 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 difficult. It's impossible. You cannot. We all know that we cannot predict the the future performance level, even the future performance potential of an athlete at five years old. You know, it's ridiculous to assume that we can. Um, what I believe we have to look for is just indicators. So let let's take an average five six year old that might be running around in a in a recreational gymnastics class, and and that one athlete just tends to stand out, and it. Sorry, they're not even an athlete necessarily at that, that age. So that child might might stand out. And, uh, you know, it just might be that they're paying more attention than the others. It could be that they just tend to bounce better off a springboard. It could be that they look pretty strong and, you know, you might take them to one side and, and sometimes you can have a five, six-year-old that can bang out a couple of chin-ups, you know, and it's phenomenal. And it's these sort of indicators that we look for to our best ability at that age that might govern the decision to just, you know, not put them in an elite program, but let's just move them into another environment where we can nurture them for six months, another 12 months, and let's see if they can just progress to the next stage and if they can cope with that and maybe a few extra hours and we've got the support of the parents and everything's moving in the right direction, then, then we just raise the bar again and we just go, let's try another few hours or another couple of days. So I think it's, um, it is impossible to do it uh, correctly. I try and encourage as many clubs as possible to build a talent profile. So, you know, identify exactly what it is that you are looking for and just use that as a little bit of criteria. Not to say that you can't move outside of it, but it's, it's useful to, let's say you select 20 kids and you only end up actually taking 10 of them. Well, it would be useful to know why the other 10 didn't actually move through to that next stage. And if you've got a talent pro profile, you might notice some patterns turning up. You know, it might be that their strength when you first tested them wasn't up and, and that actually stayed, you know, then, you know, after a year, they still weren't very strong or perhaps their attention wasn't great. You know, it could be all these different types of things. But at the end of the day, we all know that five, six years old to be able to build a talent profile and a development at that age is, is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Um, and I try and discourage coaches and clubs as much as possible of just, um, you know, throwing talent away, throwing you know the talent that whispers away, only picking the talent that screams, and and not allowing these athletes time within a coaching environment just to develop and receive some coaching and see how much they progress. Given that, have you had any experience of other sports like football and rugby trying to tap into the young athletes that are coming through the gymnastic system? Um, I would say it would typically happen towards the end of their career. We still get a lot of interest, you know, you know, uh, talent transfer, if you like. So, you know, we we say that gymnastics is the foundation of all sports, but we're very biased. 
that. But we do believe that it's a very good um, underpinning preparation for any sport that the athlete wants to wants to go to, particularly because many athletes in gymnastics do retire before they reach the age of 20, for, for female gymnasts anyway. And, and that could be an absolutely fantastic opportunity at 20 years old to head into another sport because many other sports are only just getting going with their athletes. And I think there's a lot of transfer that happens. In terms of younger athletes, um, well, certainly I would say that if they had their heart set on the elite path and they didn't make it, if you like, whatever that means, then they might consider moving into another sport and they tend to do very well. You know, I know, I know a lot of kids that have moved on at 14, 15 years old into athletics and are currently doing exceptionally well at, at high jump and pole vault and, and, and triple jump and, and sports like that. You know, they're, they're competing at a, a national team level. So, you know, there's, it certainly happens. Absolutely. We're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nick. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we discuss how the fundamentals of gymnastics can be transferred into a uh, an academy, uh, well, especially academy environment. But I suppose that that part of the podcast is transferable to any sports across uh, a multiple uh, range of ages. So if you are involved in team sports, not traditionally uh, gymnastics, there'll be tons to take away from that in part two. But also just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are interested in a sleep tracker that is easy to integrate within a team sport or group environment, make sure you check out uh, fatiguescience.com. Uh, and have a look at their product. I got introduced to them via the guys, the Seattle Seahawks, uh, who use their product and uh, and speak very highly of it. So if you are interested, uh, please go check them out. So part two coming up with Nick, hope you enjoy. And again, I'll say it again, but I would love your feedback uh, based on this episode. So I just want to move on to your physical preparation model uh, and a specifically a resource that you've developed and that listeners can get hold of for, for free. So if you just want to talk to us a little bit about kind of the, the development of that physical preparation model and what it currently looks like and what the what the resource that uh, that people can get hold of actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I call it uh, athlete optimization. It's a it's essentially a visual representation of what I feel are the the most important movements for a female gymnast from a physical perspective and the eight competencies of those movements as well um, so it's designed in the shape of an octagon and I've, I've got a download that your, your listeners can, can grab it you know there's no cost involved but it'll be probably quite useful for them to see what I'm talking about so um, we'll make sure we include the link to that but uh, essentially I'll just run through quickly the, the eight movements and they're a combination of, of physical uh, sorry general preparation quite sport specific preparation so we've got number one just jumping and landing the ability to be able to jump and land properly. And number two would be the ability to rebound. So just a plyometric activity. And critically, it's the athlete's understanding of the difference between jumping and rebounding. Because we take this to a quite an extreme level within gymnastics because of the nature of our bounding and, and fast twitch, you know, elasticity of the floor. So it's absolutely essential that the gymnast doesn't confuse and blend jumping and landing and rebounding. They're absolutely separate. So they're, they're the first two. The, the third one would be lunging and single leg activities because we need to be able to lunge technically in order to do our acrobatic elements. Of course, we know that physically it's a very important movement. Uh, number four would be running. And apart from 10 or 11 steps leading up to a vault, 
there's not much running that takes place in gymnastics, but I firmly believe that actually it's a really good foundation for teaching a lot of the principles that we need with physical and technical preparations. So that's uh, you know, plyometrics, posture, force production, stiffness, acceleration, you know, all those qualities are the bread and butter of gymnastics. So, uh, you know, I really do invest a lot of time into running technique and speed and force development. And uh, that's why it's on the octagon. So those first four are predominantly lower limb activities. And now we're going to move into two sort of full body. And these are the gymnastic specifics. We've got a handstand because it's the bread and butter of, of all the shapes, or all the skills, if you like. But also it's what a handstand represents. Okay, it's not just the ability to balance and stand on the hands. It means that the athlete can uh, pull their ribs in, uh, tilt their hips into the correct position, elevate their shoulders, uh, all the form things like straighten the legs, point the toes and achieve that straight line. So, so just like running, it's not just the, the shape, it's what that represents in terms of their physical abilities. So a handstand is essential. We've got a gymnastics term which is called a Corbett action and essentially that's uh, a transition between two shapes. Now, the best way to me for me to explain that to a non-gymnastics audience would be if you were to take a, a long ruler and you bent the ruler so it was under tension and you let go, it would transition between an extended position and then it would snap into another sort of closed position if you like. That's a Corbett action and our athletes will do that all the time when they're you know, doing backflips and, and multiple somersaults and things like that. The final two would be upper body related and number seven is shoulder flexion extension. So just you know, raising the arms because again, it's a critical movement for gymnasts when they're you know, reaching backwards to do a flip, when they're opening their shoulders upside down on the bars, and maybe when they're taking off for a somersault. So it's you know, raising the arms without compensating the thoracic without losing core tension, it's, uh, that's, that's number seven. And number eight, finally, would be shoulder elevation and depression. Okay, Critically, shoulder elevation, because without stiffness through the body, when the hands contact the floor, we're going to create a shoulder angle and the body is going to collapse. You know, Essentially, we're going to be leaking energy into the surface that the athlete is contacting on. So, so they're the eight movements, and then we've got eight competencies of those movements, which, of course, your audience will be familiar with. So we've got... Um, tempo, you know, can the athlete perform those eight movements with a varying level of tempo? Can they do it fast, power production? Can they move slowly as well? Um, have they got good symmetry? That would be number two, you know, obvious perspective. Posterior, anterior, but also left and right. You know, have we got good movement competency here? Is everything aligned? Uh, number three would be form. Just the shape, just the general way that it looks to the eye, which is very important to gymnastics. Uh, next competency is strength. Then we've got capacity. Then we have stiffness. Then we've got mobility. And finally, stability. So if we just take one of these exercises, for example, be jumping and landing. We're essentially wanting to make sure that the athlete is competent through all of those eight movements so they can do the squat at varying levels of tempo. They've got a symmetrical squat movement with good form. They can challenge that position with external load and force production. They've got the capacity to perform that over and over again. They can demonstrate stiffness, which for me is, is body tension and rigidity. Uh, there's no mobility implications there, and they can do that with varying levels of stability. And, you know, essentially for me, that octagon kind of epitomizes the bread and butter of a female athlete's preparation. And, you know, of course, there's other movements that take place, but from my experience at a technical level and traveling the world and, and working with all these nations, I found that this is to be the priority. 
and uh, it's pretty much the bread and butter actually of the work that I present to federations and I do and also to the professional sports teams that I work with as well. I know you mentioned that physical preparation model is for female gymnasts and this may be a quite a long uh, answer but how does that differ for for male gymnasts? Okay well um, yeah, unfortunately it would co- totally mess up the uh, the octagon uh, and because of my expertise and my experiences within women's gymnastics, which is essentially, it's like almost coaching a different sport, um, I haven't delved, delved into that. However, you know, that's not to say that I, I couldn't suggest what I believe the differences are. I think it's important to have a lateral shoulder movement. If you think about the rings and how much work that the men are doing, uh, you know, lateral, you know, moving their arms to the side, supporting their weight, I think that you certainly have to have that in there. And uh, you probably have more of a bent arm pushing action in there as well. Uh, for the for the same reason in terms of you know what the athletes could be doing on the parallel bars and and, and the rings and and things in there as well. So I believe that the uh, you would have some additional movements, but all of those eight that I've already described would absolutely be in there still as well. So one of the last things I wanted to chat about before I before I let you go was some of the work that you've been doing uh, as a consultant in some football academies, some soccer academies. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about? kind of why you were brought in and the kind of things that you were delivering um, and sharing with these uh, with these football academies? Yeah, so, you know, I've been really fortunate to get into about four or five academies now, actually, and, and you know, not only watch the work that they're doing, but, but help deliver some internal CPD education work for the staff, which is typically the, you know, the sports science medicine team, but also the, the coaches and just, you know, sharing our perspective on, on the way that we do things. Um, interesting enough, I don't tend to go in there and deliver actual gymnastics to the athletes because I don't think really that's what's necessary. I know, I know some of these clubs do a, a multi-sport activity, so they might do kind of 30 minutes of gymnastics within their, within their academy. And, and that's great. You know, they're dabbling into other sports, but what I tend to share is, is again, our, our physical preparation model and, you know, what that looks like for an eight year old, a nine year old, a 10 year old and, and essentially like our proactivity. So how proactive we are with an eight-year-old that, that walks through the, our gymnastics doors for the first time and, and immediately we're looking at, you know, what are the limiting factors of this athlete? Um, you know, what are what I call the red flags? What's stopping this athlete from moving forwards? But also what can we put in place now which is going to support this athlete when they, uh, when they do need to be really resilient? You know, when they're doing international competitions, that could be 14, 15 years old. So I'm pretty much going in there and sharing the type of exercises we do, which you could call calisthenic, you could call gymnastics. I just call them, you know, just general body weight movement. Um, but it's sharing a whole host of different exercises and, and the, the way that we do things, because I think that's also, you know, a beauty of, of gymnastics, because we're a judge sport and execution is important. We have to do things a certain way, and we, we tend to be pretty good at making sure that there's a, a high level of accuracy with everything these gymnasts are doing, you know, including physical movement. So if it was, let's say, a Bulgarian single leg dip, then we would make sure our athletes are doing it exceptionally well. Um, the same with an RDL, the same with uh, doing 10 chin-ups. You know, it's not uncommon for an eight-year-old girl to be able to do 15 chin-ups. So it's like, you know, it's, it's having those high standards, and, and that's kind of what I'm bringing into the football academies is, it's actually presenting an opportunity. So I'm not there to be critical and say, you know, look, guys, why are you not doing more physical work with your 10-year-old players when they come into your academies? Instead, I'm actually saying that, you know, if you adopted a similar concept to what we do in gymnastics, which is a much higher level or a different ratio of physical to technical, then 
potentially you could have more robust athletes at 13, 14, 15 years old. And, you know, maybe some of these injuries that are occurring quite regularly in terms of, I don't know, ACLs, hamstrings, etc., maybe the rate of those hamstring injuries could reduce. Um, and it's just presenting that kind of model, really. And also, I guess the, the typical questions that I often get or the, the challenges that are faced is, is all about eating into technical pitch time. You know, say everyone wants to be on the football pitch, they want to be, you know, kicking a ball around and absolutely understand that. So it's, you know, how can we get more volume of physical preparation in without impeding on that time? I believe personally it's the warm-ups and it's what you do before and after training. So rather than taking a big chunk out of the technical time in the middle, it might be investing just 10 minutes at the start and 10 minutes at the end on basic movement competency and, uh, you know, landing mechanics perhaps and some, you know, basic hamstring work. You know, but we're doing that at, at a young age. We're doing that in gymnastics with our eight-year-olds. We're doing it with our nine-year-olds, and we are by no means perfect, but I kind of believe that that's quite a good thing, what we're doing there. And so I think, for me, frequency would be more important than the total volume. You know, doing 10 minutes a day is more important than doing one block of one hour, which I know occurs quite a lot within academies. You know, they might get 30, 45, or maybe an hour with a strength and conditioning coach a week, and that's it. And that time is also split between one coach and, let's say, I don't know, 12, 12 or even 20 athletes. So our ratios are a little bit smaller, which, which is great. But also we're able to drip feed things 10 minutes a day. And so we, you know, I believe that's important. I think it's the frequency which is as important as the total volume. Um, and so it's just kind of presenting those models really. And, and it's been really good. You know, I've done, I've done some work with some reserve teams, you know, the under 18s and, and there's been some interesting insights and discussions on the back of it. And, uh, yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed that work. Superb. So where, where can, before I forget, where can people get hold of the um, resource that we talked about in your physical prep model? Yeah, okay, so it would be um, on my website. It's uh, nickruddock.com forward slash octagon. And my name is spelt, uh, so obviously N-I-C-K, surname R-U-D-D-O-C-K. So Neil Ruddock, uh, sorry, Neil Ruddock, God. Nick Ruddock. <laughs> <laughs> That's a completely different podcast. forward slash octagon. I was literally about to say, like the footballer, Neil Ruddock. <laughs> <laughs> I got myself confused because I, all the time I get it, you know, introducing Neil Ruddock and I'm, oh, God. Dear, that's absolutely class. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I've just confused myself now. I can take it to a whole new level. But yeah, Nick, nickruddock.com forward slash octagon. It's a free download and um, it would just be probably an interesting visualization for people to understand what I was talking about. There. Nice. Well, that's a nice little icebreaker, that. Yes. Uh, just before you go on to speak. Oh, I like it. Well, it's, it's happened a lot of times and you kind of think, you know what, do I say something or should I just keep my mouth shut? <laughs> and normally I just keep my mouth shut, you know. <laughs> Brief, as far you could, as you could get from what you're actually talking about is Neil Ruddick. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Well, that's a, I think that's a good place to uh, to round up and just say thanks very much for your time. Um, really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and having a chat, mate. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. No pleasure, mate. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 160 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick. Got some great guests, some unbelievable guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast app uh, and you'll get them delivered every Thursday um, over the next couple of weeks. uh, And I'm sure it will not disappoint. So thanks again for your support. Also, a big thanks to Val Performance 
Force Dex and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Without them guys, uh, the podcast could not run uh, in its current format. So thanks again for your support. Uh, Really appreciate it. And I will speak to you soon.